Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am Dr. Cole. I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. And if you are now listening for the first time, this is the podcast. We typically go over high yield orthopedic topics. We try to hit the high points, at least for OITEs, for some of you that are residents that are listening that have to take your in-training exam. And there are also some attending physicians that listen as well that may be helpful for practice. But this episode is completely different, um, and you all will see why, you know, in a couple of minutes after you continue to listen on. This episode, I have Dr. William Levine, and we actually kind of cover surgical education, kind of what it's like now to be an educator, some effective ways of educating. And we actually dive a little bit deeper into Dr. Levine's life, kind of what brought him to the point where he is now. And he has a long, very impressive resume list, but just to name out some of the accolades and positions that he has achieved throughout his lifetime, he is the current chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons. Uh, He also serves as the chief of the orthopedics service at New York Presbyterian slash Columbia University Medical Center. He is the head team physician for Columbia University. Uh, In his department, he actually helps coordinate his surgeons, also function as a team physician for the New York Yankees. Yes, the famous Yankee hat for those of you that have those hats. Um, He is also a past member of the executive committee of the American Orthopedic Association, which is actually the world's first orthopedic association and the organization that was primarily responsible for the development of orthopedics as a discipline separate from general surgery. So sorry to our gen surge peeps. We still love you. Um, he also served on the board of directors of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. Um, he also assumed the role of editor-in-chief for the Journal of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons in 2016. He also received the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Traveling Fellowship in the past, and he is the most recent president of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society. So nonetheless, he has done a lot of things, very impressive. We really take a deep dive into, again, what it means to be an educator. Uh, We talk about his life, things that he's learned from different people in his life, and especially this is a good episode for if there are any uh, educators out there, you may be hold a role in an academic uh, institution or for residents listening as well. Um, this is even med students. You know, I think this can be a, a podcast uh, that can be very useful for the general population. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Levine, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. So happy to have you on. Looking forward to this talk. This talk will be a little bit different, but again, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Wendell. It's great to be with you guys tonight. Yes. And, um, you know, there are numerous accolades. I know you've done many things uh, with your life and we'll definitely get into a lot of those, you know, it's different achievements that you have been able to um, doing things that you've been able to do over the time. But, you know, this podcast is a little bit different. We will be talking 
Uh, we'll be taking a, a dive a little bit deeper into you and kind of the story of what brought you to the, the point in the and where you're at right now. And then we'll also talk about some things about surgical education and, uh, and we'll go from there. Um, but just to kind of start off and just to kind of get a, a basis, you know, for just getting to know you, um, just, just in general, what was your, just growing up, what, what was it like growing up? What was your household like? Were you only child or, you know, did you grow up with a, you know, a lot of brothers and sisters? So how, how was your um, experience, I guess, growing up and, and getting interested in medicine? Well, I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, Wendell, which I bet you a thousand dollars you've never been to. <laughs> I have not been there, but one of our <laughs> residents is actually from North Dakota as well. So, you know, this is that right? right there. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So my parents were from Canada and uh, my dad was a physician and um, they wanted to be uh, my dad wanted to practice medicine in the States. He was a urologist. And, uh, but they wanted to be close to their family in Winnipeg. So Fargo is four hours south of Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is actually where I was born. And so it, when I was three months old, they, uh, they crossed the border and uh, moved to Fargo, North Dakota, where my dad basically started practicing urology. And um, I was one of five children. Um, so I have three older brothers and sisters and a younger brother. And uh, three of the five of the kids uh, ended up going into medicine. And my younger brother ended up going to law. And my oldest sister uh, was the only business-minded person. So uh, we were kind of exposed to um, higher education early. Uh, my mom, interestingly enough, is the, the rock star of the family. She was uh, 19 when she got married to my father. She dropped out of college like many women did in those days and started having kids and just followed my dad around to his various stops in his medical training. And um, then when they settled in Fargo, she was about, well, I guess she was 32 years old. I was seven. My younger brother was four. It was the early 1970s. And uh, she had picked up her college degree kind of piecemeal along the way. So she had you know, dropped out, but then got a college degree out of her various um, travels at various stops along the way. And, and so now she's kind of uh, got these five kids. The three older kids were in high school. I was seven. My younger brother was four and a half. And she sat down with my father and said, you know, I I'm kind of want to do something else with my life now. And so they wrote down, you know, literally wrote down on the back of a, of a piece of paper, you know, kind of the things that she was interested in. And that, uh, the net result of that exercise was, was that she thought, well, maybe I should go to law school. Hmm. And so in North Dakota, there's only one law school, and that's in Grand Forks, which is 90 miles away from Fargo. So my mom, and this, remember, this is 1971. So my mom makes an appointment with the dean of the law school. She drives to Grand Forks and uh, he took the meeting and um, my mom explained what her thought process was. And the, the uh, dean, who, of course, was male, said to her that he thought she was just a spoiled doctor's wife and was bored and wouldn't really be motivated enough to do it. And my mom convinced him otherwise. And to his credit, even though that sounds like a Kind of terrible thing to have said. Remember, it was 1971, and uh, that was a fairly prevailing thought. And so he accepted her. And my mom drove back and forth 180 miles a day for the next three years. 
and she graduated number one in her class and then became a, an attorney of one of the most prestigious law firms in Fargo. And that story would be pretty remarkable if it ended there. You know, I think that's a pretty amazing story. But then in 1985, I was a junior at Stanford and uh, my mom calls to tell me that uh, she's being considered for the Supreme Court of North Dakota. And I was like, wow, you're, okay. you're being considered for what? <laughs> right. And uh, and sure enough, my mom uh, was named to the Supreme Court. She was the first woman, the first Jew uh, to be named to the uh, state of uh, North Dakota's highest court, the Supreme Court. And she sat on that court until my parents retired um, and moved to uh, Northern California about 20 years ago. So, uh, so my parents basically instilled in those five kids the, the concept of education and working hard. And, um, and there was never a question that any of the five of us would not you know, come back to North Dakota. It was just kind of a foregone conclusion that we all went to public school all the way through high school. There was no such thing as private schools. And we didn't really know anything about that. Um, but we all went off to private colleges and then graduate schools and, and, uh, and you know, parent, and eventually my parents uh, moved away from North Dakota as well. But North Dakota really has a very fond place in my heart, of course. That's where I grew up and my formative years were there. And that was a great place to, uh, to grow up with my brothers and sisters and my parents. Wow. I mean, that's, um, that's some story about your mom and, and you know, her going to law school, being, you know, number one in her class in the Supreme Court, first uh, woman to hold that position. And just like you said, I know you said it instilled some values or, you know, the characteristics of, of working hard. You know, you had your, your dad was your urologist. Are there any other values? I mean, you have two, two hardworking parents. I mean, 180 miles, at least three hours on a good day. If there's traffic, you know, three and a half, almost four hours. And there's not a lot of people that put that type of, um, that have that type of commitment to do that daily. And then you have to study, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things that you have to, uh, that you have to kind of juggle or do to make that happen. Are there any other values that you took growing up from watching your mom and your dad work that, that, that play a part to how you go through life today? Yeah, I think Wendell, one of the things that it really showed me was that my dad had to take over what would have been considered um, typical um, female or mother responsibilities because my mom was busy studying. Um, and so even though he was a physician, he was a surgeon and busy, <clears throat> he, um, you know, on weekends when my mom had to be sitting there on the kitchen table with, you know, all her law books, uh, he would take my younger brother David and me out and we would just go hang out for the day and go do whatever we needed to do, but get out, stay out of my mom's hair. So that was number one, was that the traditional, um, um, traditional roles for men and women weren't by the book. Yeah. Uh, and number two was that I had this mom who was, you know, a powerhouse. And then I had these two sisters who were likewise, my uh, older sister, um, you know, uh, became fluent in Chinese and worked for, in the uh, White House under Bill Clinton. She was oh, wow. a deputy, deputy undersecretary of treasury. My other sister, Sari, is a urologist like my dad. So yeah. my perspective on women uh, being, you know, equal, strong, powerful uh, was, was very much ingrained at a, at a very young age. And I think that helped to inform my perspective on 
you know, what I think the role of women is, and obviously in our world in orthopedics where women are so incredibly underrepresented, um, that's something that, uh, you know, I've always, um, you know, tried to figure out, well, how can we fight that? And now I'm married, of course, and my, I have two strong daughters. Great. So I've got nothing, nothing but these women in my life, Wendell. Yeah. Um, and so when I became chairman in 2014, um, it became one of the, the things that I thought, well, I can't change the, the, the fact that orthopedics is horribly underrepresented by underrepresented minorities and women, uh, but I can do what I can in my own microcosm. And so uh, just two weeks ago, I hired what will be the 12th female faculty uh, member at Columbia um, uh, since I became chair five and a half years ago. And so, you know, I think that's all we can all do in our own microcosms. You can't change it overnight. And I'm not going to be able to change it in my, in my generation. Your generation, Wendell, has to change it. You know, so it's going to be your um, generation that I think we'll see both uh, underrepresented minorities and women start to have a, a more um, appropriate level of representation similar to the culture and the society we live in as opposed to what it historically has been. Right. And, and I think, you know, just what you're saying with my generation, I think change, just one person can instill change in so many people, right? Just like you said, your mom, that's a, that's a, a, a big uh, person that you had in your life that instilled these values and that the, these values you you take with you, you know, throughout your lifestyle. And now you've already, you know, you have 12 female faculty members that whose lives you have changed. And there's no, there's no telling to the amount of lives that those 12 faculty female members will change as well. So, you know, I, I know you, you don't think you're making a dent, but you, you, I mean, you're definitely doing something big. And I think that's something for, of course, my generation to continue. And I, I think, um, I think that's an important thing that, we all know. And even people listening to this podcast may listen and say, listen to the story of your mom and, and realize and that may open their eyes to something that they weren't thinking before. So, uh, number one, definitely thank you for, for sharing that story and, and and kudos to you for, you know, hiring female faculty members and having that that kind of a, a mindset of um of everybody, you know, being equal and knowing that, you know, women are just as capable uh, uh, as men, especially in this world of, of orthopedics and underrepresented minorities. And since you since you brought it up and we're talking about you being in the chairman, what what are some of the things that brought you into academic medicine? Can you kind of tell me the story about what what brought you to this side of medicine and, you know, what in this side of orthopedics in particular? Because I know you've you're chairman, but you've also done many other things in your career. Well, I, I think that um, it's very interesting because I'm sure your listeners know, but if they don't, I'll share that the statistics are pretty daunting. If, well, there's two ways to look at it. They're either pretty daunting or they take some of the pressure off when you look at the percentage of orthopedic surgeons that change jobs within the first five years of uh, starting their practice. And that number it depends on what you read, but it's somewhere around 60 to 70% of all orthopedic surgeons will change jobs uh, within five years of their first job. And I'm one of those people. So the first job I took out of my fellowship after doing my shoulder fellowship at Columbia uh, was a private practice job that had an academic affiliation um, in San Diego. And uh, it was just affiliated with UC San Diego. It was a great group. 
and um, I, I found this job and I was really excited and and for a variety of reasons that weren't professionally uh, based but more personal and family I had to actually leave that job and come back to the east coast and that's when I decided to do a second fellowship so I had done a shoulder fellowship at Columbia and then I did a second fellowship in sports medicine at the University of Maryland and uh, then when the dust settled and I needed to I could then figure out what was going to happen with my family and personal situation at that time my old um, fellowship director and and uh, mentor Louis Biliani had become the chair at Columbia and so he was looking to recruit me to come back and to merge shoulder and elbow in sports medicine and so here I I was a 32 or 33 year old you know young snot-nosed kid and I had this incredible opportunity to come to Columbia and do something that had never been done before because sports medicine didn't exist and of course the shoulder service was you know the legendary world-renowned shoulder service. So it was, a, it was, again, both daunting and exciting all at the same time. Um, and so, you know, I started in the more of the private practice world, but that was really situational. And Wendell, I, when I mentor so many fellows and residents and medical students, and we talk about the job search, and you're going to go through this just in a couple of years coming up, um, I've always described it as being situational. You can tell me, Wendell, that you definitely want to be an academic sports medicine surgeon, and Dr. Savoie is going to help you get the best fellowship in the country based on your hard work and his advocacy and your faculty's advocacy at Tulane. And, um, and you know what, when you're in your fellowship, wherever that might happen to be, uh, and you're looking for a job, you can say, hey, I really want to go into academics, but the year you're looking or at the place you're looking or the geography you're looking, there just isn't a perfect job. Um, you take the best job available. It's kind of like the draft and you're taking the best talent available. And so that's how you can look at the glass half empty versus half filled when you hear that 70% statistic about changing jobs. So I just try to demystify it for my mentees and the folks that I have the privilege of, of mentoring. And I say, look, it does not have to be a utopic job. And in fact, the likelihood is it won't be utopic but you're gonna do the best job at, the at that time. It may be your spouse or partner or significant other needs to be in a geographic area. It may mean that you have to be in a specific area. Maybe there's a lot of reasons we take jobs. And so that's how I've always looked at it. So I'm a perfect example of that. I took what I thought was a great job. It didn't work out and wow, here I am. Now, if you had told me I'd be living in, and working in New York City, I would have told you to get your head examined. <laughs> Coming from North Dakota. <laughs> that, that, part, that part I never would have predicted. I thought I'd be in California for sure, where most of my family is. But, but New York has been phenomenal for me, and it's allowed me uh, some really incredible opportunities uh, in my career. Yeah, I can imagine New York being a lot different than Fargo, North Dakota. Um, <laughs> now, that's what, that's what brought you there. But now, what, what made you stay? Because you, you've been there for a little while. You know, it has to be something in the system or is it something yeah. personal? What made you stay there? Well, I, you know, I, people ask me that all the time. And I came to, I, I was hired by Dr. Biliani in 1998 uh, to be on the faculty. Um, and uh, I had a huge passion for education and for mentorship. And, and that, that was something that was really important to me. Um, and, uh, and so I, I had an opportunity very early to become uh, associate residency director and then residency director, probably way before I should have been because I was so young, but I just you know, happened to be in the right place at the right time. 
And, um, and that allowed me to really grow uh, professionally and personally to try to reshape the, the residency program. It was a historic, Columbia was a historic residency, but you know, it had a lot of things that needed changing. And there were some things that were here that were very, um, I would say hierarchical and historic uh, based on how people had been treated by generations before them. And I coming as an outsider along with other faculty that came in as outsiders were slowly but surely able to chip away at what was really not the healthiest um, culture and it's one of those things that happens in programs. And you know, I, I go around as a visiting professor to lots of different uh, residencies and departments in the country. And I know that Columbia certainly wasn't unique in that. Um, and when you have kind of that inbred uh, system where there isn't really a checks and balance from people uh, differing perspectives, Wendell, I think that leads to some uh, less than optimal uh, um, culture sometimes. So it was, it was really kind of an amazing thing to try to change, uh, you know, this incredible program and this storied program that has been here since 1866, one of the oldest residencies and departments in the, in, in the country. Um, and so I had this opportunity to, to help really shape the future. So I think that's what kept me here. The, the other thing that kept me here for sure was the, the people. Um, the residents are amazing. The medical students at Columbia are fantastic. Uh, my, my colleagues and partners, uh, our fellows, um, our support staff, you know, the department has folks that have worked here at Wendell for 20, 25, 30 years. So, so I think it was the culture and the uh, people. And then for me personally and professionally, you know, what an incredible opportunity I had to, to do what I love, um, you know, orthopedic surgery in a, a place that allowed me to, to really kind of help um, create my, the, you know, I, I had a mentor, John Richmond, and one of the things that he used to say to us as residents at Tufts was if you could, I, if you could draw on the back of a napkin what your ideal day in the operating room would look like, what would that look like? And so that's an exercise that I have my residents do all the time and it really does help shape what, you know, you told me earlier, you thought you were interested in sports medicine. And so I would ask you to do that same exercise and make sure that that napkin matches up with what you think you want in sports. But when I dropped, when I made my ideal OR day on the back of the napkin, that is my practice that I have today, all these years later. And uh, so I feel very blessed to, to have been able to help shape, you know, what that looks like. And I was just going to ask, what is this? What is that? Because I see a theme here. This is kind of the second time. The first time was when your, your mom and, and your father sat down and, and kind of wrote out what her goals were and what she wanted to get done. And she got it done. And then it's the second time we're kind of mentioning, you know, kind of writing something down and visualizing what, you know, your goals may be in some certain area. And I think that's something just to note, at least for everybody listening, that that's kind of a, a form of, um, I, I don't know, maybe being self-accountable or, or, or make writing things into existence if you, if you believe in that. Um, but what, what was or is, you know, that, that on the piece of that back of that napkin, what is your ideal day? What, what did you write or what would you write? And, and what does that look like in your, in your head? Well, what, what, I, what I was thinking I wanted was I wanted to do the most complex shoulder and elbow surgery in the world with no, no, no 
barriers. So everything from arthroscopic surgery to a reconstructive surgery to trauma surgery to the surgery that only uh, crazy shoulder and elbow surgeons will do like tendon transfers and yeah. scapulothoracic fusions. And then what I would consider kind of bread and butter or routine sports medicine from a perspective of lower extremity. So I wasn't interested necessarily in doing multi-ligament knee injuries, uh, but ACLs and routine knee stuff and that sort of thing. So that was kind of how I viewed what, what would be my ideal practice. And so um, when I did my second fellowship in sports at University of Maryland with T. Mormon and Leanne Curl, who are mentors there, uh, that really it gave me access and exposure to a couple of things that I hadn't had in my residency and in my first fellowship at Columbia, where I um, you know, had the privilege of learning from Louis Biliani and Evan Plato, two giants in, in the world of shoulder and elbow surgery. And what I, what I had to, what I got to do in Maryland was A, take care of the professional team with the Baltimore Ravens, uh, took care of the University of Maryland, the Terrapins, took care of UMBC, um, and so that really, from a sports medicine standpoint, gave me a stamp of, of approval, so to speak, that I really hadn't had up to that point. And then because of Maryland's relationship with shock trauma, I ended up having this um, a great opportunity to take care of all these complex multi-ligament knee injuries, which even though that wasn't something I necessarily thought I would be doing uh, in the future, it was a fantastic um, uh, experience, which obviously made the rest of, of knee surgery uh, kind of uh, much more straightforward once you're taking care of a lot of those uh, type of injuries. Um, and so that was a, a, an opportunity for me to, to um, expand my horizons and, um, and start to kind of uh, formulate in my mind what I thought would be um, a great uh, practice. And then when Dr. Biliani said, um, hey, Bill, why don't you come back to Columbia because Columbia had the shoulder service, but there was no such thing as sports medicine. They had had what they called the knee service in the past. And so again, that gave me this really incredible opportunity to come to here, come here and, um, and not just be part of the shoulder service where I would have been one of six or seven surgeons and the lowest person on the totem pole, but actually do something unique uh, related to it um, and create the sports shoulder service and, and uh, kind of fuse the two together. So that was really a, a I think, a, an incredible opportunity to come to a storied program that did allow me to do something completely novel and not done before. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, that is great. And you mentioned a lot of things that we could dive, dive deeply into. And if we did, we'd be here for forever. But uh, one of the things I know you talked about talking with the Ravens or having that kind of shock trauma experience now in that in that sheet or in that back of that napkin did you have anything where you mentioned talking about mentorship or teaching or working with with others because now you work with you know residents and fellows was it was there anything about that that was on your mind back then or did that come with time well that goes actually before before um residency that goes back to medical school and um so when I was a, a medical student at Case Western in Cleveland, uh, there was a pediatric orthopedic surgeon who I always give credit to whenever I am given a chance like this. So I'll do it once again. And his name is Peter Scholes. And if you were a, a Case medical student interested in orthopedics, 
it was his singular goal to have every case student match in orthopedics, no matter what your grades were, and no matter what your scores were, and no matter what your background was. He really would try to do everything he could to help the case students match, whether there were four that year or six or eight or 10. Um, and so it was really powerful and impactful to me to see what an incredible positive um, uh, position a mentor could have on the most vulnerable of people, students, yeah. uh, right? There, there's, no, there's nobody more vulnerable in medical school than when we're those students who are just hoping and praying that we might be able to you know, get into our desired specialty. And especially as you guys all know out there listening, and Wendell knows very well, you know, there's, there's nothing more competitive than orthopedics. Right. And so I really, uh, I was just blown away by this, this guy's generosity of spirit, of time, of energy. And so I said, you know, if I ever have an opportunity, and, you know, I certainly had no clue I would, but I said, if I ever have an opportunity to pay that forward uh, and give respect back to Peter Scholes, uh, and then subsequently to so many other mentors that have paved the way for me being where I am today. Um, that's what really led me to stay or to kind of seek out academics uh, and then seek out the, the roles I've, I've chosen. I mean, we choose our pathways in many ways. So the best story I'll tell you, and, and then, you know, I know you have a lot of things you want to cover, but um, oh, when, I was, when I was switching from being the residency director to becoming the department chair in 2014. Um, one of the things that um, uh, I do have done a lot of, and is one of my favorite things is mentoring our Columbia medical students going into orthopedics. And we have a 97 or 98% match rate success over the last 21 years. Uh, and that doesn't happen by chance, as you know, that's a no, lot no. of work. It definitely um, is. Um, so that's, that's, it's in large part due to the incredible students we we're blessed with at Columbia. And then it's also because of the advocacy of the department and the faculty who really work uh, hand in glove with, with the students and the Dean's office to try to, you know, make that happen. So uh, Dean Melman, who's the Dean of Students called me to congratulate me when she had heard that I became, uh, was becoming the chair of the department. And she was, she was kind of, it was a very fun, we, we laugh about it now, uh, but she was a, kind of a little sheepish on the phone and she was kind of hemming and hawing. And I said, Lisa, you know, we know each other very well. What's going on? She said, well, Bill, I have to tell you, I'm a little nervous. And I said, well, what's that? She said, well, you know, for all these years, you've spent so much time, you know, helping us with our, with the Columbia students matching in orthopedics. And now you're going, you know, into this new position. And I, I said, without thinking, I, without even blinking, I said, Lisa, uh, I'm changing uh, offices. I'm not changing personalities. Um, <laughs> right. And so, you know, that's just been part of, part of my DNA and continues to be to this day. And, and that's frankly how OrthoMentor started um, when, when Tabs Ayer called me out of the blue. Um, uh, he's, I, think, I, I jokingly tell Tabs that the, he and John Kaplan and Matt Vericalo, the three co-founders of ortho mentor needed somebody with gray hair because they all looked like they were about 14 <laughs> years old yeah and uh so that's that's been an incredible ride as well especially during the uh covid crisis yeah and you know big shout out to dr peter schools for um for i guess having that impact in your life and then you know being i think 
I think having a, a good mentor, somebody that impacts your life, it kind of makes you want to do the same to somebody else because you want them to have the feeling that that somebody gave to you. You know, it's kind of kind of like paying it forward uh, in a sense. So uh, I'm sure that all of the current and previous students, maybe now residents, fellows or attendings um, from Columbia appreciate your your thought process and in, in, in the way that you you handled um, you know your 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 leadership role, and, and speaking about that, just since we're we're on the topic and we're kind of talking about this kind of mentorship uh, a model, can you talk about a, a time when you were working with maybe a resident, a fellow, or even a student, if it's that 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 you were trying to teach them something or get a point across, but now now you you looked and you saw it click in their heads and. It, whatever it may be, maybe a technique or, or just something that you're trying to get across to them. Uh, can you just talk about a time where, where you saw this click in that learner's head and kind of what lessons that you took from it and as far as how you interact with students or residents or fellows in the future? Uh, yeah, Wendell, I think that's a great question. And um, I, the way I think of that question is, if you think about how we do residency education or surgical education in the US, it's largely a time-based um, uh, format, right? So how many residents do you have at Tulane? We have, currently we have three a year. Three a year. So do you do four month rotations? So we actually do two month rotations right now. So you okay. know, we'll do so two months on trauma, so et cetera. Do, yeah, so you do two month rotations. So just like our six residents at Columbia do two month rotations. And you know what happens at the end of the uh, PG one year, the, the, um, uh, the CCC meets, um, the competency committee meets, and they, they go through the residents and they say, you know, have they met the criteria to go from PG-1 to PG-2? And there's a lot of rubber stamping that goes on. And, you know, hopefully there's objective evaluations and so on and so forth. But in large part, it's simply based on time. You have reached the end of the 12-month calendar and it's time to become a PG-2. Now, if you think about that, knowing what we know about humans, knowing what we know about the brain, knowing what we know about how we all learn, uh, we know that that is one big fat fallacy. There, there is absolutely no way on God's green earth that all six of the Columbia residents come to that same aha moment at the same time or all three of you guys uh, at Tulane likewise. Right. And, and so that's what led Ben Allman when he was at uh, the chair at Toronto uh, and many others, I, 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 there's a lot of people who did this, but the, that's what led to the competency-based curriculum uh, that Canada was, was so instrumental in pioneering. And the concept of a competency-based curriculum is that you have a fracture module, let's call it the hip fracture module. And there's some saw bones and maybe some virtual reality and some didactics and when you're on that module, Wendell, you have clear criteria of what you need to achieve to so-called pass that module. And it has nothing to do with the time involved. It has to do with when do you meet the objective criteria? How many cases do you have to do? What proficiency do you have to show in the operating room? And so on and so forth. Now, the problem is it's extremely expensive. It's very hard to manage because if you think about it, that's like what happens if you finish in five weeks instead of eight weeks. And then what do you do with those extra weeks? Correct. But the concept, the concept makes a hell of a lot of sense. And I think we all can agree on that. 
And so the best example I have, I've had, um, I had a resident who was uh, in their fourth year, so it would be the time where you're applying for fellowships or just getting ready to apply for fellowships. And this particular resident was struggling. And, um, you know, again, that, that light bulb had not gone off. And this was an extremely accomplished person, uh, had never had a, a, a day in their life where they hadn't succeeded at the highest of levels, had an impressive pedigree, all of that stuff. But for whatever reason, they were struggling. And so I had a decision to make as the residency director at the time. And the decision was, do I let this person apply for fellowships at a time when they were really struggling? And, and that application process was gonna be stressful because they knew they were struggling. It was gonna be stressful for their mentors who knew they, he was struggling. And so we kind of sat down and I went over it with the, this resident and I said, you know, I think the best thing to do right now is let's remove all of that stress from the equation. There's plenty of fellowships available during your fifth year. And uh, always, you always hear about really great fellowships that open up, a spot opens up here, so on and so forth. I said, let's just take that off the, the menu right now because there's too much stress involved. And let's just focus on getting you to that comfort level that you need to be at to, so that when we then advocate for you for next year, we can just say, you're fantastic. You're great. You're awesome. You know, you've got, you've reached it. And it was really amazing. You know, I didn't know how that conversation was going to go. And you can imagine uh, depending upon the person and the personality and the defensive posturing, it could have gone poorly. Uh, but the person actually thanked me profusely when we took that off the, the docket and they were able to do some extra work and some extra reps and so on. And, uh, and about a third of the way into that fourth year, the light bulb went off. And all of a sudden you saw all of the potential and all of the talent that we knew the person had kind of just uh, blossom. It was, it was kind of remarkable. And so they finished through the fourth year. And then just as we had thought during the fifth year, great fellowship opportunity opened up, which they were able to procure went on to the fellowship and now is successful orthopedic surgeon doing great in practice. And, and uh, so I, I like that story because it really, it highlights that all those principles that we just talked about, that not everybody reaches the same um, uh, level at the same time. And you have to be able to have A, recognition, B, some latitude and C, open, transparent, candid conversations with the person to say, this is not meant to be punitive at all. This is about doing what's best for you and your education and your career. And right now we just need to put the brakes on. So uh, I, I hope that is a good uh, uh, illustration of, of that for you. No, I mean, Dr. Levine, that was a, a great um, illustration of that. And just kind of breaking that down, some of the things that, that you said is, or at least are, you know, you, you, you were able to articulate some of the things of kind of just being, being a good leader in that sense, right? So you're able to assess that person or that individual for the individual they are, not just their position uh, where they should be, or, you know, you don't, you didn't kind of um, assess them as a class. You know, one thing that made that successful was accessing that person as an individual 
Um, and then putting yourself in their shoes is another thing that sometimes is, is hard for people to do is to sit and think, oh, well, if I was, what if, what if I was that person? Well, I know, I know that they will be stressed because they had to apply. They know that they're not doing, doing, performing at that, at that level where they want to be at. Um, you know, you, putting yourself in that person's shoes, you know, living life through their lens and then being able to have an open conversation where you have the conversation and you let them know that you're looking out in their best interest. You know, these are all, I think, good qualities and good things to to learn from anybody that's listening that's, that's maybe in any type of leadership position, you know, to be able to um, treat each person as an individual, um, look through their lens and see what they're experiencing. And then when you're speaking to somebody, because that's, that's another skill of how to talk somebody or how to influence people is you kind of put it in the terms of, of what's best for them, which is what, which is what you just said, literally word for word um, on, on how you were able to help make it click uh, in this resident and, you know, in, in their, uh, in their career. And I'm sure they're be they're a successful surgeon now at this point. So I just wanted to break that down and I definitely appreciate you for sharing that story and just kind of moving on. I just wanted to touch base on, you know, you being a chairman since 2014, you know, over the years, as far as surgical education, what are some of the challenges that you've faced when dealing with residents or fellows, or it may not even, you know, it may not be a fellow, it may be, you know, you're working with somebody else to work on something for fellows or for residents. Um, but what are some of the challenges that you face over the years? And then are there any specific challenges that you still face in 2021? Well, I think for all of us who are uh, surgical educators, we will never, <laughs> will never not be facing challenges. Correct. Uh, I give a talk, uh, one of my favorite talks that I give Wendell when, I, when I'm giving a talk to a whole department, so we don't want to just talk about shoulders or just talk about, you know, a very narrow topic is, um, surgical education in 2021, it's not as easy as it used to be, is the title of the talk. And um, I, I think there's never been a, my, my uh, what I would, would propose to you and your listeners is that, you know, I think there's probably never been a more challenging time to be a surgical educator. Um, think about the forces against the uh, you doing the surgery with me, Wendell. You're on my service and think about what happens. The first thing that happens in New York, it might not happen in New Orleans as much, but the first thing that happens is that the patient uh, decides they want me to do their reverse total shoulder replacement. So the first question they ask me is, am I doing the surgery? Hmm. The second question they ask me is, do I have residents or, and or fellows and or medical students assisting me? To which I always reply, yes. And then it depends on what happens next and their look in their face on how I respond. But typically, if I need to go down that pathway, I'll say, you know, let me just ask you a question. For the private practice orthopedic surgeon that you're thinking is doing your entire surgery, who do you think is assisting them in the operating room? Because we all have assistance. The people helping that, that surgeon in the community is, uh, might be a surgical scrub. You know how what education that person has? six months to have a vocational program. You know the education of my fellow? Four years college, four years medical school, 
five years residency and their sixth year in their fellowship. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, mm. never thought of never really thought about it like that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great way to think about it. I, I didn't so, even thought about that. So, so it's a definite thing that we uh, have not done a good enough job to educate because the, the society and the public have been so pummeled with the negatives about, and listen, there have been abuses and we all have to own up to that. I mean, but this concept that residents or fellows are evil, um, you know, is just is, is so crazy and insane. And I don't think we've done quite a good enough job in helping educate um, the public about who you are and what the hell your level of training is and yeah. what you've sacrificed to, to be there. Um, so I think that's, that's really, uh, critical. So it, A, we've got the patient often against you doing anything with the sharp, dangerous object, as I like to say, <laughs> sharp, dangerous object. Uh, we have, we have, um, the hospital often because we've got throughput issues. Uh, we have government because we've got lots of oversight now. Um, and then we have all the negative press that does happen with, you know, running to rooms with, uh, go surgery with complications, with lack of candor. Um, and so I, I really believe that there's just, it's, there's probably never been a more challenging time. Uh, on the other hand, it, it also obviously provides opportunities for us to figure out how to become better and more efficient uh, educators in the operating room specifically. Uh, and I think that's where I use a lot of my uh, training and uh, mentorship that I learned from my mentors uh, and some principles that I think are really uh, will always stand the test of time and that usually again revolves around being candid uh, and having transparent communication. So Wendell if you're on my if we're going to the OR on Wednesday and you're in a room with five cases and you're going to be doing uh, three arthroplasties, a uh, ladder and an arthroscopic bank art, you're going to know what your role is on each of those five cases uh, there's not going to be any jockeying for position in the operating room or at the scrub sink, which I think is the worst thing in the world you can do. And if that happens, that means that the quarterback of the team, i.e. me, has not done a good job in communicating. And it may be that on the first reverse shoulder, you're going to do the delta pack approach. You're going to get the humerus uh, delivered. You're going to prepare the humerus. Uh, and the fellow might do the glenoid and uh, uh, glenoid implantation. Uh, and then the next case, you guys might reverse it. Or if their fellow says, you know, I've done a million of these, um, Wendell, you're the PG2 uh, on the service. Why don't you do this as far as you can go? Um, and so that kind of uh, interplay is, I think, what goes a long way to um, limit, it can't eliminate, but it certainly goes a long way to mitigate some of that stuff that happens. And you know that stuff, right? You, it doesn't matter if you're talking about a two and a four or a two and a five or a three and a fellow or whatever the combination is. If there's more than just you and the attending in the room, and sometimes it doesn't have to be anybody else. It could just be you and the attending, but the attending is doing the case. We're doing more of the case than you want. If you don't, you know, I've always believed, and I think this is really true. If I know what my role is and if I know what I'm gonna be doing, um, and also, conversely, what I'm not going to be doing, I'm okay with that. It's just the uncertainty 
or worse, when you're expecting to be doing the case and you don't get to do the case. Yeah. And then you've got that frustration, like, shit, I really thought I was going to be doing that <laughs> oh, case. I, I know that frustration for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that that's what we try to, you know, I, and look, it, it, sometimes it's hard, right? You've got 10 cases and you've got this time, you know, you're looking at the at the clock and you've got your daughter's recital or basketball game or God, you know, God knows what else is going on. So I think sometimes residents and fellows obviously forget that that attending is a human being too, and they've got lots of stuff going on in their brain. Um, but the, it's, to me, it's about communication. And that's how I've always tried to run my practice. And as an educator, um, that doesn't change, no matter all of those societal things and patient things, and et cetera. And it does not change the fact that if we, if we communicate and are transparent and at indications conference every Tuesday morning, which we'll have tomorrow at 830. That's part of what we go over, not just why we're doing the surgery, but kind of who's going to be doing what. And I usually have a PG2 and a fellow in one room and the PG4 and the fellow in the second room. And so the PG2's experience is obviously going to be somewhat different than the PG4, but the more prepared that PG2 is, uh, the more they do. That's the right. fun part. That's the fun part. And, and that's, that's to me, the thing that, you know, I think, um, you know, I, uh, people talk about the millennials and they talk about being entitled and they talk about all the negative <laughs> stuff that you, I, I'm sure you've never heard any of that. Oh yes. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> um, you know, the reality is, and this is again, something that's very interesting to me is there's tr tremendous research that shows that a lot of that stuff is bull honky. Some of it is, there are some kernels of truth in it, but again, it comes back. What your generation really does wanna do is they wanna understand why. And so it's a little less dogmatic. It's, hold on, I'll take that back. Your, your, your generation is much less interested in dogma and it's much more interested in why. So if you tell me that you're gonna, if I tell you that, here are the parts of this case you're going to be doing, and you know that, and you understand why that is, it's, it's a much better um, relationship and much better learning experience, I think, for everybody. So I don't buy into the, the stuff about the, the generations. Um, and when I'm counseling some of my, you know, younger faculty members or friends who contact me from other programs, I usually talk about you've got to be much more concrete than you might have thought you had to be, or then you, people were with you, and that's fine. That's that's not spoon feeding. That's quite different. It's just making sure that there are not you don't have. It, it's like it's managing patient expectations. In this case, it's managing resident and fellow expectations. If you're if you're going to go in that case with me on Wednesday, Wendell, and you think you're doing this third time revision reverse with tremendous bone loss from skin to skin, and that's your expectation. Well, A, that expectation is probably gonna be unrealized. B, it's probably unrealistic. And C, I'm sure there are parts of the procedure that will be appropriate for you. Or it may be that this case is so complex that you're gonna watch this one, but the next case, which is a primary reverse, you're gonna do much more of. So, but that can all be communicated ahead of time. And then I think that goes, a very long way in in managing your expectations uh, so that you can maximize uh, your ability to learn in the OR. Because don't forget, there's a lot to learn in the OR, no matter who's got the sharp, dangerous object. 
But right. if we ch if we check out because we're pissed or because we're disappointed, well, you're right. now you might as well you know get the hell out, right? Because now you've you've kind of you say I, I can't learn anymore because I'm so angry, I'm so disappointed. Um, and so I think that's really the key learning point for the young the young folks listening to this podcast is that uh, don't think that just because you don't have the sharp dangerous object that you can't learn. I mean, some of my most there were times when I was a fellow with Dr. Biliani or Dr. Flato where I actually gave the knife back to them and said, you know, let me watch you do this. You know, there's certain parts of the case where you, you, if you can watch and understand what they're doing and then take away from that and be able to mentally rehearse as Chris Ahmad, my partner talks about in his book, Skill, you know, you should be able to do the way, you should be able to do an arthroscopic cuff repair the way Dr. Savoie does it from skin to skin ahead of time, mentally. And when you can do that, when you can actually visualize the steps, Wendell, all of a sudden you get that aha moment like you, you're, you'll never have in anything. It's incredible. Yeah, I think that is that's so important and definitely underrated. And I've noted myself at least now going back and, and appreciating that because, you know, now they have, you know, the uh, arthroscopic stimulators that you can use to, uh, to practice, you know, scoping a shoulder if you want to practice scoping a shoulder. And then I was doing that, and I, and I thought to myself, well, how does Dr. Savoir or another one on our staff, Dr. O'Brien, how do they do it? And so now being a third year and having, you know, getting closer to our, our so-called chief years, I noted myself going to the ours and, and trying to take notes on different things, like how do they hold the knife? How do they develop their planes? Uh, which way are they holding a the knife when you're developing your planes? What instruments are you using? Um, how, like, what steps are you using when you're, doing a, a shoulder scope you know what what hand is it in which way do you have the camera looking at you know and i've realized that 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 would just exactly what you're just saying you can learn so much more and especially doing those mental reps and playing in your head over and over about how you're going to do the surgery because when you actually you know go to to do the case you would have had you know you would have mentally prepared for this so now you know you kind of know which way you're doing and, and what way you're doing what and that kind of that makes you a little bit more uh, I, I would at least say at least more efficient uh in the operating room and, and i think it also you can correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like it would show your attending that, that you've been watching them as well and, and paying attention yeah and look if, if there are there's um there are some orthopedic surgeons who i've had the the privilege and honor to train over these last 21 years that are a different cut than the rest. They're at a different level. And very early, they demonstrate uh, those qualities. They demonstrate the ability to actually, after the case, and, I, and you know, the residents on my service do this all, always, it's part of our, our routine, is they sit down and they, they, they write down the steps of the procedure from one to whatever it is. And they use that then when they come back because see our residents in our program window as we were talking about before we came on air, they come on, on sports shoulder service as a two, three, four, and five. And so um, they get a tremendous experience in shoulder elbow and sports medicine. And each time it's like, I, I describe it like laying down the foundation to your house. That first as a PG2, you're the most clueless, right? Um, but you write down the steps, you write down, how did I position that patient 
in the operating room. How did I position those, those retractors, uh, which are, you know, you'd think that's such a, a minimal thing. And then as a four, when you're struggling on a shoulder replacement, yeah. you're like, what in God's name were they doing? What did O'Brien do to get that exactly. exposure for that glenoid? I can't do it. Um, and so that becomes your encyclopedia of knowledge, those written down um, kind of uh, historic recordings. And then you can add to it because guess what? As a four, you look back as what you wrote as a two and you're almost embarrassed by the, <laughs> the, things, the, the things that you, you didn't even have a, a clue about, right? right. And, and you see that. And that's not meant to embarrass anybody. That's just, that's what surgical education is about. Um, and then as a five, you start to have even more nuanced thinking. And you're like, man, I'm, a, I'm just about to go be a fellow. And now I got to figure out all those things. What is he doing with his body to position so that he can see that glenoid perfectly every time? What did he do with the arm position? What did he do with those retractors? What did he do with those soft tissue releases? What did he do when the humerus was in the way and so on? And all of those little subtle nuances are the things that now separate you from a four to a five to a, an upcoming fellow. So when JT Heffernan came from Tulane to, to, to be our fellow last year, that's kind of where he started. And what I tell fellows when they start, um, I don't care if you come in from Tulane or HSS or uh, McLaren in, in Michigan, a small community program, a large academic program, you know what? It does not matter. And, you know, there's so much discussion, Wendell, on those on the chat rooms and the blogs and, you know, which programs get the best operative experience and how many cases. You know what I can tell you, being a surgical educator for 21 years, it does not matter. And what I mean by that is I don't care where you start. You can come in with phenomenal arthroscopic skills. You can come in with phenomenal trauma skills. All I care about is where are you at the end of the year? And when I'm signing off on you, when you're going out into the world to represent Columbia and represent me and our incredible faculty as an ambassador, uh, that's what we care about. And that's why we spend so much time, energy, and, uh, and um, uh, have so much enthusiasm for surgical education. Uh, because you guys all come to this you know, at different times. And as residents, it's going to be at your pace. And then as a fellow, I've got people who come here and they literally have had almost no arthroscopic skills. I have other fellows who come and have never seen a glenoid put in, you know, so it, right. it's all across the board. And uh, that's why we do fellowships, especially now with, with the eight hour work week and minimum and decreased repetitions in residency education. Um, you know, look, 98% of you guys are doing fellowships for a reason. Yeah. And I, I hope if you were listening to that, that you just kind of rewind that those past five minutes and listen to that again. Uh, you just, Dr. Levine, Dr. Levine, you just dropped um, so many gems of uh, important uh, information, especially the different things like, you know, how do you, how does this person position their body? The little, the little minute details that you don't think about until you're actually the one doing the case. Just like you said, like, oh, well, how do I position this retractor? I've seen it done so many times, but I didn't realize that that was a detail that I needed to, we, uh, to Wendell, we have, we have a conference every Friday uh, called Technique Conference, and it's Chris Ahmad's brainchild. Chris is my partner and longtime friend and one of the most gifted surgeons that you'll ever see. Um, and so we basically have either a PG-4 or 5 or a fellow 
um, in the case of PG3, we'll pick one case um, that was done within the last week that uh, people videoed and took enough you know, uh, material on. And we will dissect that case like you can't believe. By the time you're done, you feel like you have to, you know, have a, a stiff drink because every <laughs> every single thing we're talking about, Wendell, you know, like where where did you make the portal and what happened and was that portal in the wrong spot and what would you do if the portal was in the wrong spot and what is your backup plan when that portal in that trajectory is in the wrong spot or what happens when you 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 did your um, uh, osteotomy for the coracoid for your ladder J and it was a little too deep and you got into the glenoid. It was a little too shallow and you can't really do a ladder chain. You're really thinking more like a Bristow. So it's that mental thought process where it's not just getting up and saying, hey, we had an 18 year old with bone loss. We did a ladder chain. Here's our post-op x-rays, next case. Right. Uh, it, is, it is this incredibly intense and all inclusive um, approach to how do you actually think about being a surgeon? And, and so it's a totally different exercise. It's not something done, I don't know of any place that does it quite the way Dr. Ahmad's brain works. Um, and uh, I, I think that our fellows and residents uh, would tell you it's exhausting because you, you sometimes are like, oh my God, can we just get out of this case? <laughs> but right. but it, it, really, it really is incredible in making you uh, an incredible surgeon. No, I think that is is something that can be definitely taken for granted if you are a, you know, if you're a resident and you just have the, you know, the mindset of, oh, come on, let's just move on to the next one. But there's so much to learn um, from really breaking down and dissecting these different cases and and what you would do, for example, if you went too deep when you're when you're taking your uh, when you're doing your your ladder J, you know what's what's your bailout method, and these are things that you may overlook at the beginning, but later on when you're if you're out in practice and, and you do do that, well, what do you do? And if you never discussed it, you know you're kind of you know you got to figure out a way to make things happen. And um, we're running out of time here, but I just want to just ask at least one last question, Dr. Levine, and, and I just wanted I know we wanted to touch on. Uh, virtual reality and what what kind of a role do you think that will play as far as you know future education uh, for for orthopedic you know residents or fellows or even medical students or the field of medicine in general and and kind of your thoughts on that? Yeah, Wendell, I, I think um, uh, I, uh, Danny Gale is the CEO of a company called Precision OS. Uh, Danny's a shoulder and elbow surgeon in, in, in Canada, and. Um, so he reached out to me about a year ago and we got some goggles uh, for my residents and started using it. And um, uh, I'm just, I was just the president of the American Children and Elbow Surgeons this past year. And so I'm the immediate past president. And uh, the current president's Mark Frankel from Tampa. And Mark asked me to, to head up a task force for ASES to look at virtual reality and, and how we could start incorporating it into our educational platform. So we had a, a number of uh, virtual reality companies uh, present to uh, the task force. And um, as it turns out, we did decide to partner. Um, and we're just starting to work out the, the details with Precision OS. I just got my goggles last week and I got uh, two sets for my current fellows. Um, but, but what this allows us to do, Wendell, is for example, let's say you had a pair of goggles in New Orleans and then I have my goggles and then let's say you have a friend who's a resident um, in California 
and we wanted, let's say that we wanted to do a uh, reverse total shoulder replacement with an augmented base plate with the Zimmer Biomed system, uh, then we all could do a multiplayer um, event where we would be in the same operating room and one of us could be the surgeon and the other two the assistants and then we can actually change places uh, in real time uh, and go through the, the entire procedure of doing a augmented base plate reverse. So think about the power of that for just a second. And I hope your listeners are, are listening to that and thinking, wow, that is amazing to be able to not have to travel, not have to pay, fly in an airplane, not have to use a cadaver, not have to go into an operating room, not have to worry about COVID, yeah. uh, not, none of the above. A real and yet, reality. And yet, and yet have an incredible educational experience. Now, not only that, but for you can do things like this, Wendell. So let's say you put the guide pin in uh, where you think you want to put it for uh, preparation for the glenoid uh, and then the ultimate uh, augmented base plate uh, placement. You can then reach into the shoulder. You can take the scapula out of the shoulder virtually, and you can spin it around in your hand and you can see exactly where your pin was. And mm. you can say, holy crap, that wasn't even close. Or you look at it and you say, yep, that's perfect. And so that study has actually been done. Um, they published it uh, in JVJS. Ryan Laura was the uh, resident at the time. And um, what they showed is a 570% improvement in uh, residents or trainees using their virtual platform versus um, just looking at a, a video from an expert. So you watched JP Warner uh, do his augmented base plate on ViewMedi in preparation for your surgery. So you, you watch that, you have the other group do a virtual reality uh, with the, the augmented base plate. And then you have both groups go to a cadaver and do the surgery. Mm. And the group with the VR had a 570% improvement compared to the control group uh, who just watched the surgical video. Wow. Pretty powerful, pretty powerful stuff. So there is no question in my mind that we will all have goggles. We will all be doing virtual reality. It will become part of the curriculum for residencies. It certainly is gonna become part of the ASES fellowship curriculum uh, as we move forward. And uh, I think it's gonna be a, a total game changer uh, for us as surgical educators. Wow, yeah, I will definitely have to look that up in 570% increase. That is, uh, that is, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's a big increase, you know, um, that is, uh, that's great. That's, I have to look that up as far as virtual reality. Um, I think definitely, I think in the future that this is a, a useful tool, especially now in, in our, in our age, given, you know, COVID-19 and travel restrictions. And this is something that could be used to um, s slow the learning curve, or at least make it not as much of a learning curve and, and, and progress surgical, surgical education. Uh, well, Dr. Vlin, I, I really enjoyed this talk. I really enjoyed having you on. I, I feel like we we covered a lot. You told us, you know, some great stories that I hope the listeners are, are listening to and, and we're taking notes. Or if we have some educators listening to this, I hope there's something that you got from this talk that that they can, you know, implement in their programs or implement in, in you know, in their life. You know, whether it be the the, the life lessons that we that we spoke about. Um, now, now, Dr. Levine, we always, you know, at the end of our talks, we always uh, give our listeners a way to reach out to you or follow you, whether it be social media handle or anything. Is there 
anything that you want to share with the people? I know we could, we connected through a, a social media uh, platform. Um, is there anything that you want that any way that people can reach you or contact you or just follow you just if, if they're interested in just following your career path or your life? Yeah, I, I am on Twitter and I'm on Instagram, uh, mostly for my department. Uh, I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I don't do a lot of personal um, uh, tweeting or, or Instagramming. Uh, so it's mostly, mostly to celebrate uh, my department and my team. Every once in a while, I'll do something personal, like sharing my, my uh, younger, my older daughter, Sonia, uh, just had her white coat ceremony um, uh, at oh, medical school. Great. So so that was something that I, I, I did share, but for the most part, uh, so I, I'm not, do, do you know what my, I don't even know what my Twitter handle is. Do you know it, Wendell? <laughs> yeah, let me, let me pull it up. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, yeah, let me, let me pull it up. I can, I can, I can pull it up in, in, in one minute here. Yeah, it, but, but while you're doing that, my, if, if people are interested in reaching out to me, because everybody has my email address, I'm happy to. My email is wnl1 at columbia.edu. And if anybody's interested in, in uh, I, I speak to hundreds of medical students from around the country to try to help mentor them. And there's a, you know, one of the things that the pandemic really showed us, Wendell, is that, that the dearth of mentorship around the country for medical students, especially those interested in orthopedics, is, is uh, it's really sad. Um, and uh, so ortho mentor obviously filled a void this year in this yeah. uh, unprecedented time. I mean, you know, the fact that we had 5,200 people sign up for a webinar and 3,200 showed up live between uh, Zoom and YouTube, uh, it's kind of a crazy, crazy thing. And yeah. um, uh, so, you know, uh, it's, it, I think that the, for all of us, whether you're a third year resident at Tulane or Chairman of Orthopedics in Columbia, if, if we can share some knowledge and share some experience. Um, uh, and, and that's really the most important uh, take home point from my standpoint is that unfortunately, I think there's so many uh, students that are just so starving for any information that they end up um, you know, getting some of their information from sources that might not be as reliable or as up to date as, as others. So, do your best to, if you're a student, reach out to a faculty member, reach out to Ortho Mentor. Tabs Ayer has done a phenomenal job and Matt and John and the guys there. Uh, but find people that are really committed to, to your education and to your pathway. Um, and, and even if they don't know you or even if you're not part of their department, uh, those types of folks that are out there are really uh, willing to give up their time uh, and experience to try to help medical students interested in going yeah and I, I back that up and 100 uh, percent agree with everything you just said and i did find it, it is it is bill levine md that is your your twitter handle so there you go there <laughs> for you those go. listening that want to follow dr <laughs> levine it is bill levine md that is how you find him on twitter uh, Dr. Blaine, again, thank you so much for being a guest. It was a great conversation. I'm sure the listeners will, will love listening to this. So again, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Wendell. Have a great night. Thanks for having me tonight.